thank you, Gary, a faithful elder and brother. Last week we asked the cross the question, as you help Jesus, bound by nails to you, you tell us about his body. This week we asked the cross, as you held him near, can you tell us what he said? You tell us what he said. In your life, when you've been perhaps the butt of the joke, when you've working on a project, smashed your finger, or frustrations that came about, when you were on North Street and were cut off, what words came to your mind, or what cloaked your attitude? Jesus is hanging on the cross unjustly. He is sinless. There is no blame to be found in His mouth. And so how does He respond in this situation? What words come out in athletics when one team gets so far ahead? Usually they pull the starters for fear that the athletes will become tippy and take cheap shots and their mouth will begin to run like crazy against each other. They have nothing that they can lose anymore. What does Jesus have left to lose on the cross? Maybe finally, the skeptic thinks, maybe finally we'll see the real Jesus. How will He respond? What words will He say to the men that are crucifying Him? What will He say to His family members who are still there? What will He say to the the thief, the criminal hanging beside him that's mocking him. What will he say to them? So to the cross we ask, what did you hear Jesus say? And we're going to ask, what did you hear Jesus say to the people gathered? What did you hear Jesus say to, to God while on the cross and therein? What did you hear him say to both God and man before him? So let's look as we note the first of those audiences. Tell me what Jesus said people. Tell me what Jesus said to the people, beginning with the believing criminal that hung behind, beside him. And much like with last week, I asked you the question, for the very end, next step, questions in mind, that we must individually ask ourselves, who do you believe Jesus is and where do you believe he is today? The consequences for your response are to impact every part of your life. They will. It doesn't matter your age, if you're quite young or quite older. Who do you believe Jesus is, and where do you believe He is today? And so, we asked the cross, what did you hear Jesus say to the criminals that, that hung beside Him as you held Him near? In Luke 23, 43, we see what Jesus says to the believing criminal, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Remember every word that Jesus speaks, He speaks in anguish. There's no such thing as a casual conversation on the cross. For every breath that he takes and every breath that a criminal takes, they must push off with their feet with the nails that are binding them. In agony, they must gain the strength to gain the breath to articulate the words that they speak to him. So Jesus says to the criminal beside him, Today you will be with me in paradise. In the context for that, I read for you Luke 23, 38-43. There was also an inscription over him, as we talked last week, This is the King of the Jews says in the sign hanging above his head. One of the criminals who were 
hanging, railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do not do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. The men that are hanging beside Jesus are hanging justly. They're criminals and they know it. There was no scandal that brought them to their death on the cross. They hang justly. They're criminals. And the state has the right to execute them to bring sword of justice. But they've observed Jesus. We don't know a lot of answers about these two men. Some have speculated maybe they were co-conspirators in their criminal life. But we don't know that. We don't know how much they knew about Jesus before this scene. What we do know is that they've observed Jesus in the crucifixion. They've observed the soldiers mocking him. They've observed the way that Jesus suffers. They're certainly able, in all likelihood, to read the sign hanging above his head. This is the King of the Jews. One criminal mocks Jesus. Remember, Jesus hangs exposed. At the very least, his outer garments had been stripped from him. Soldiers gambling for them, as we discussed last week. But the uncle defends Jesus. Every breath, remember, in agony, he gains the breath with his courage to speak out in defense of who Jesus is. The man sees the sign above his head and believes it literally. He believes that Jesus is indeed the King of the Jews. He says to the other man, Don't you fear God? Either believing what the Scriptures teach that Jesus is indeed God, the eternal Son, sent in the flesh to dwell among us, fully God, fully man. Or at the very least, the fear of God, believing that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah, sent from God. The man defends Jesus while on the cross. Think of that. This was the day of this man's just execution. He would only know Jesus. He would only come to faith in Jesus for perhaps a matter of minutes or at max hours. And yet by faith in the Christ, Jesus would take His mustard seed of faith and hours of faithfulness and would use this man's testimony so he lived life as a criminal. He would use this man's testimony that he had placed his faith in Jesus as the Christ and longing for entrance into Christ's kingdom. And he would use this testimony that Jesus gives and he tells him, I promise you, today, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. Not tens of thousands of years in some sense of suffering or purging. But today you will be with me in paradise. The Lord has used the testimony of this man and his only hours of walking by faith in the Messiah or hanging by faith in the Messiah. He would use it to stir the saints to faith for centuries now. Think about the 
faith that this man has. In John chapter 3, Nicodemus, who had it all together, it seems, he came to Jesus and asked him a question. As we observed last week in this text, he came bringing 75 pounds of, of good-smelling things to prepare Jesus' now-dead body. This man looks at Jesus, the sign that says, this is the king of the Jews, and every king has a kingdom. And the man deduces very logically, well, Jesus' kingdom must not be right now because most kings don't reign while they're being crucified. So believing in some sense, knowing that his end is drawing near, this criminal and Jesus is on this earth, he believes that Jesus will raise again from the dead. That he will indeed enter into his kingdom. And so he says, don't forget me. He pledges his allegiance. Think about that. We believe in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sin and rose again. He bodily rose from the grave. We believe this, that He ascended to heaven and He will come again one day. This man placed his faith in Jesus. We say, yeah, but he could see Jesus. He could see Jesus, but he could see Jesus literally being crucified beside him. And it's at that point that he placed his faith in Jesus as the Christ. How great is our God. That in the moment in which the government would swing the sword of judgment and bring this man to his day of execution and death, God, by grace, would make this the day of appointed salvation for eternity. That's how great our God is. But what's that mean for us? However you've lived your life to this point, if by faith you come to Christ, you will come into His kingdom. And you will know forgiveness and hope and grace and mercy, and He will use your life that you walk by faith, however many more days it is. And just because we're young, let us never make the mistake that we have many, many more decades left. And just because you're older in years, don't think you may only have a few days left. Never doubt what the Lord will do through faithfulness. How do you think that man, I, I wonder how that man slept the night before. How to be terrified. He knew this was his last day. There was no getting out of this. As we talked last week, the professional executors always did their job with 100% proficiency because if they didn't, they would be crucified. He couldn't negotiate his way out of what was going to take place. But it would be on the cross that he would meet the Messiah and he would gain everlasting life to be with Jesus forever. That is terrible. Genesis 50, 20. Joseph tells his brothers who sold him into slavery, left him for dead, what you meant for evil against me, God meant it for good to bring about it that many people should be kept alive. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul is speaking of those who preach Christ out of selfish ambition. He says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, to that I rejoice. And so what do we have as believers? We, we ought to never give up on anybody. But I always pray that God can change the heart and bring the dead to life. As Jesus told Nicodemus, the Spirit blows where He wishes to bring people from death to be born again to life. That's the goodness of the Gospel. Do you believe Jesus is the eternal Son sent from the Father? The Messiah who came to bear the sins of the world on His body upon the cross. The sinless Lamb of God. Have you placed your faith and trust in Him, turning from sin and pledging allegiance to Christ as your Savior? 
And if you have, you've been purchased. You were bought with a price. You are not your own to glorify God with your body. The goodness of life that He's adopted us and bound us to as a body. Oh, God is good. God is good, and you say, all the time. All the time, God is good. Even on the cross, He would give this man and make this the day of His salvation. How good is that? His day of execution would become His day of salvation. That's our God. Secondly, what did Jesus say to His family? What did He say to His believing mom and cousins? We see that answer to that in the Gospel of John. He says to His mother, Behold your son. And He says to His cousin, Behold your mother. Now this is very interesting. John is standing beside Mary. So remember, Mary is Jesus' mom. John is Jesus' cousin. And so Jesus in His kingdom with these believers, His believing mom and believing cousin, He has authority to redefine this relationship. And so He looks at His mom and tells her, Behold, not your cousin or your nephew, but behold your son. He says to his cousin, not behold your aunt, but behold your mother. He applies the fifth commandment now to them. He redefines the relationship. He heightens the standard of commitment in that relationship. Why? Because it's his kingdom. He has authority to do so. And this is interesting. Think about this. At the scene, we're told that that John's mom, Salome, is is there. She's at the scene. And we know that Jesus still has biological living siblings. His own brother, James. But at this point, James is not yet a believer. James, it appears, does not come to faith if he's the resurrected Christ, his resurrected brother, Jesus. And then James is faithful until the end. He dies as a martyr. And how beautiful is it then? In the book of James, in James chapter 1, he'll tell us that, that this religion that the Lord finds pure and undefiled is that we take care of the widowed and orphans. It was at the cross that Jesus commissioned John as a believer to take care of his, if you will, widowed mother. Believers taking care of believers. And of course, he says in James, to keep oneself undefiled from the world or anything from the world. Let's think about that. How does my faith, the very simple application question, how does my faith in Christ, how has it redefined my relationship? How has it and does it redefine my relationship? We see in the scriptures the, the boundary wall between wall between Jew and Gentile is broken down. We're now they're down to one in Christ. From Greek and barbarian, those that didn't speak Greek, they're, they're now one in Christ. We're of equal value, different roles, sure, but equal value in Christ. We're family in Christ. We're bought with the same faith, same Lord, one blood. How practically does our faith redefine our relationship? Let's apply it in the context of the local church family. 
our local church family how we do church. Now, we're having a membership class today at 2 o'clock. So this is not like a subliminal plea to make you be like, I better sign up for that or I'm going to feel weird when I'm around Brent for the rest of the time. No, that's not what this is. But I think in the nature, if you speak about what biblical church membership is, it's a clear defining of the terms of our formal pledge and commitment to this group of people. So your elders and, and pastoral staff are saying, to this group of people, I am accountable to God for, as Hebrews 13 says, to give watch for you, to give an account to your soul. To the teaching of the word that we do and the shepherding of you in life. That's who we're accountable to God to. He has to love all people and care for all people. And as Romans says, first to the, the body, the believers, but these are the people, these are the faces that you look around that we're accountable to. Pursue and to, to give good food to and to care for. And so, as members, we ask that question as well. One day, you may or may not leave for Nacogdoches. And if you do, what should you look for in a church? Well, let's talk about what's commonly discussed when it comes to church membership or joining a church. What are the things that usually come out? Well, do they have a good kids program? I.e., is my kid bored when I take them off? Because they will eventually, right? Every kid will get the purpose then is not to entertain them to death. It's not the purpose of our faith. If our purpose in children's ministry and youth ministry is to train them up so that they're not bored, they'll be eaten alive by the world. And they are statistically. So it can't be that. That can't be the primary purpose. Of course, find a good, solid, a Jenny John body, an amazing job. What about music? You know, the music matches up with my Spotify list. This, this is perfect. What happens when you may not like the music as much? Will you leave? Is your relationship bound only by your music preferences? What about the, 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 the preacher? Well, I really like what he says. Well, listen, if he's preaching through books of the Bible verse by verse, eventually you won't. So in our life, how do we view the local church? Are the pastors and elders, are they overseers or are they consultants? When it comes to the local church, we're saying, this is, these are the people that I'm clearly defining their relationship. In a similar way, not a perfect example, but in a similar way, like what you would say for your children. Would you want your child to simply cohabitate? And they said, well, we're living together. We're kind of doing all of life together. I mean, we're cooking, we're paying the bills. We're surviving, we're getting by. As their parent, is that what you want for them? Or would you want them to clearly define the terms of their commitment? To make a clear pledge of allegiance and commitment together, to care for one another. Sickness and health, and all those things that come with it, of course you know the answer to that. And so however local churches flesh that out, that's the question we must ask ourselves, is what is my commitment and allegiance to this people? And do I believe this congregation? Do I believe these people? Fear God and love God and love His Word enough to want me to fear God and love God and walk by His Word and mission with my life. That's what 
beautiful local church membership is. Because Jesus has authority to define the relationship in greater ways than this world does. And listen, in a world that is so intersectional and so broken down in every subgroup you could think, the body and bride of Christ that loves each other because we are adopted by faith together, it's unlike anything this world has to offer. And so the more parsed out this world gets, the more bright the church bride shines before the world as the people who are adopted by faith and made one in Christ. That's good news, right? That's good news. But this is what Jesus says. Behold your mother, behold your son, to his family. See what he says to the criminal. We've seen what he says to his family. Now what does he say to his executioners? One word in Greek, pizza. I thirst, John 19.28. To his executioners, he says, I thirst. The soldiers have already mocked him and gambled for his clothing, but he doesn't spend time here to rebuke them or to mock them or to say, hey, y'all, just so you know, yeah, I could end you real quick. You're actually, Colossians 2, 3 told us, they are being held together by Christ materially. All things were created through Christ and held together by him. Is that what Jesus says? He says, I thirst. And in saying, I thirst, there's some debate here to what he's referring to and that he fulfills this law. Because Psalm 69.21 says, They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Is Jesus saying that his saying, I thirst, is, does it fulfill that specific prophetic text in Psalm 69? Or is it because he's already fulfilled all the work that the Father had given him to do, and then it's over, he's fulfilled it, so he says, I thirst. The answer is, I don't know. That's one of those two, though. And maybe both. They both fit the context just fine. But what I want to ask us is, how do we explain Jesus fulfilling all those things? In the text that Jerry read for us, faithful elder, faithful brother, how do you explain, if you don't believe Christ basically claimed to be, how Jesus fulfilled all of those prophecies written down centuries before he took on flesh and dwelt among us. How do you explain Jesus being born where he was born? Some number at around 300 prophecies in the Old Testament written down before he came. And like a fingerprint that God would give us to show us who the Messiah is, Jesus fulfilled them all. If Jesus didn't fulfill just one of those, then he would not be the Messiah. If he was not born in Bethlehem, none of us in here were born in Bethlehem. That's taking a guess. Maybe somebody is. If so, that's awesome. We got one down. Let's see how he's doing the rest. The sinless thing. We'll see if that matches up. But think of even the claim that Jesus was born of a virgin. Forget. Do you believe that's true or not? It's true. But even the claim. I've never. I've met a lot of people. I've never met somebody that was like, yeah, it turned out my mom was a virgin. I was virgin born. Amazing. I've never met that person before. So you think of all the claims, all the things in Scripture. In the, in the old famous book, Josh uh, McDowell's Evidence That Demands a Verdict, he had, they had mathematicians that put together what are the chances that Jesus fulfilled just 55 specific prophecies. And the number is 1 in 36 quadrillion that he fulfilled those. I didn't know quadrillion was a number, to be honest with you. It's huge. Who do you believe Jesus is? And where do you believe He is today? 
how will that impact the rest of your world? He is the plane division. We note that Jesus said to the people, now while on the cross, note what he says to God while on the cross. To God, he speaks on behalf of his executioners. He told them, I first. But look what he said to God on behalf of his executioners. In Luke 23, 34, he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Now, some argue that the them has a broader audience than just the executioners in front of them. And that's probably true. But at the very least, we can agree that it includes them. The men that are putting him to death. On the cross, Jesus does not strike back to them. He does not call on a legion of angels to come and tear them to shreds. Jesus intercedes for them while on the cross. Remember, every single breath that Jesus takes, He's pushing against the nails in His feet, the anguish and the pain for every breath. And what does Jesus spend the energy and breath to do? To intercede for the men who are executing Him. He cries out to God on their behalf, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. How good is our God? Who else would you want to build your life upon than Jesus? If you're married, who else? What other words will you build your marriage and relationships on than Jesus Christ? Find me a better foundation. Students, as you consider your career and what you're going to do, what jobs you'll take and what city you'll go to, who for guidance will you pursue more than Jesus Christ? How we run and finish the race that the Lord has marked out for us. Will we do it by our own strength or will we do it by His Word? What foundation do we have? Jesus, faithful. Faithful unto death. Even death on a cross. Peter says it like this, For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Listen to this, First Peter 2, verse 22. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For this you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. He did not repay reviling with repentance, but He made intercession for them. Believer, what does that mean for our life in this season? If you want to see reviling for reviling, turn on any social media. Turn on the news. The next however many months till the election, there will be reviling advertisement after reviling advertisement. But they said this, reviling, so we can say revile them. We'll revile them for this, and we'll revile them for this. Don't vote for them because they revile in this way. Don't vote for them because they revile in this way. Reviling for reviling. It's the way of the world. When a dog has in their mouth a leaf and you pull, what does the dog do? It pulls. That's the way, that's the nature of fallen men. We, we want to hit back. We want to get even. 
And Jesus says to the, the, the victim of injustice, he speaks to him and says, if they've taken your, if they ask you to go one mile, go two miles. If they take something, give them more. He says on the opposite side, if you have more, sell or give it to another. Jesus is not of this world. He's the God man. And so, as a point of application in our life, we must ask ourselves today and this week what does my life look like to repay love, repay reviling with love? To repay angry lashings with intentional service. That's the way of Christ. And the more the world intensifies its reviling with reviling, the faithful bride of Christ will shine beautiful because the Lord, our King, has made us better. Isn't that good news? That's what Jesus said to God on behalf of His executioners. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. What about on His own behalf? What did Jesus say? On His own behalf, Mark 15, 34 tells us, this is the only quote that Mark includes words that Jesus said on the cross. He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As we read in the very beginning, before this sermon, Psalm 22, the text that Dr. William Lane points out was commonplace in the Jewish culture to quote the very first part of the psalm for the Jewish community largely memorized the psalms. And so to quote the very first line of the psalm, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, would bring to mind the rest of the psalm of God's faithfulness. Jesus cries out to God, bringing back not only to His mind, but in faith to God. And God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The reality of the bulls that surround Him. They mock Him. They gamble for His clothing. They pierce His hands and His feet. And yet you are faithful. You restore. That's our God. Do you know Him? Are you known by Him? Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. I include this both in what he says on his own behalf and also third to God and to people. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Now the centurion was within earshot, and so we could say he might have said it also with the audience in mind before him, but certainly he says it to God. Included in this is Palestine. In 1930, it is finished. The word in Greek, the words in English, it is finished. There is no greater greater saying of love known to man than those words. It is finished. To the believer, how does that minister to you today? They may be trying to work for Christ to gain acceptance. It's a reminder that Jesus really did finish it. On the cross, He paid my debt. He paid your sin debt. You're forgiven. You're adopted. You're loved. You're holy and perfect in Christ. It is finished. And to the one who does not know Christ yet, you're living your life in some sense of work, some sense of 
Maybe if I do a little more or clean myself up in this way or stop doing this in this certain way, maybe then God will accept me one day. Or I'm accepted now, but if I mess up tomorrow, I've lost it all. Trust in the one who is finished. The work kept before him by the Father. Matter of fact, one of the kind of things we can say to somebody we love is, I love you. But maybe the greatest thing you can say to somebody in love is, it is finished. Guys, I wouldn't encourage you to use that line on your date night. Good night, it's finished. So as believers, we gather together joyfully every Lord's Day morning. And we gather together and we prioritize the schedules to come and to sing praises to Him, the one who has finished it. And we walk out our lives in joy to have true hope. We are a people who have true and lasting hope because of what Christ has done and where Christ is today at the right hand of the Father making intercession for us. And so the lives we live, we don't live as sacrifices, atoning sacrifices for sin, but the lives we live as believers, we live as thanksgiving offerings to God. So we're His. Isn't that good news? It is finished. This leads us into our next step. An obedience Believers declare our allegiance to Jesus through baptism. If you haven't been baptized and you've, and you've turned from sin and placed your faith and trust in Christ, you can mark that on the Connect card and email us. To meet with a pastor or staff member at Elder at any time, that works for you. Talk about how to declare your allegiance to Christ publicly in obedience to the waters of baptism. It's how to walk out my life and here in struggling with God, with, with people together, as we walk out the mission that God has given us to make disciples for the glory of God for the end of time. But we come now to the very end. The question we asked at the very beginning. Remember, this is technically one long sermon. It's a two-part sermon on the same text. I thought you'd receive this a lot better than you would like a 90-minute sermon. So we come around and we ask this question again, because we ask it every single day. We must, when we hear the Word of God, we say, what do I do with it? And we order our service, God, man, Christ, respond. How will I respond to the Word of God? How will I respond to the goodness of Christ will accomplish? How will this impact my relationships? How will this impact my grudges? How will this impact my fears and my anxieties and my hopes and my goals in life? How will this impact, impact my very purpose? That's the good news that we have. The Lord commissions us and sends us and we have lives of response this week for His glory. Every one of us in a different context. Every one of us in a different career career field and different schedule this week. Our primary purpose is to know Jesus Christ and make Him known. To glorify God and to take relationships and to point them to the hope that we have in heaven. The one who the cross held dear. When the cross met Christ, it was never the same. When we've met Christ, we will never be the same as we working our lives in transformation. And so before we sing this song, Stephen, I so appreciate Stephen and the worship team and the effort they put in every week to 
shoes and crash songs that fit exactly with our passage and what we're singing of and hearing and sitting under. My prayer for us is that when we sing this song, we sing it for God's glory. We sing it to our King who defeated death, who conquered the grave and rose again. He is coming again soon. No one knows the hour, but He will come again for His bride. He in time thinks right, judging the living and the dead. His judgment is sure and perfect. He is the righteous King. Church body, we can abide in Him. Would you pray with me before we stand and song together? Lord, we love You. And we thank You that You first loved us. We thank You for the hope that is ours, hidden in Christ. That we are hidden with Christ and Christ in God. We thank You, Father, for sending the Son who fulfilled all righteousness, fulfilled all the Scriptures that You have breathed out by Your Spirit centuries before. That the eternally begotten Son would take on flesh. Jesus, we thank You for doing all that the Father gave You to do perfectly. And in Your work, we are forgiven. We know the Word says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, but by Your sacrifice, Christ, once and for all, we who believe are made righteous. Would You give us boldness and wisdom to declare our faith in You publicly with those closest to us and even those far away. Lord, may the unbelieving world know us by our love and allegiance to You. God, would You help us to serve them and to suffer well. God, we love You. We thank You for the joy that it is to be able to provoke one another to love and good deeds the rest of this day. We give You glory and we sing the song of a song of praise to You. It's in Jesus' name. All God's people said together. Amen. Can you stand with me as we sing this?